0: This evening we want to continue uh, as we look uh, at the book of Proverbs and to this end we want to read chapter 20 of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verses 2 through 8. So let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20 and we'll be reading verses 2 through 8. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Proverbs chapter 20. Beginning in verse 2. Hear now the word of God. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. A king who sits on the throne of judgment, winnows all evil with his eyes. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word, Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that as we look into the shadowlands of your word, into the Old Testament, that amidst the uh, pictures and images and words that all four signify Christ to come, that in the light of the revelation of your Son in the New Testament, that we would see these things clearly, that you would show us how the New Testament is the answer to the promises of the old, that what is hidden in the old is revealed in the new, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us hunger, a hunger for your righteousness, and that you would satisfy us, that you would teach us as your children, and that you would equip us for every good work. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I like doing is uh, driving my kids around. That's one of the reasons why I jokingly say I drive the family school bus uh, in that uh, every morning, at least, I take two of my kids to school. And there's some mornings that are better than others. And uh, on one particular day, I was uh, listening to my two boys have a conversation As they talked about how they had each influenced one another. I thought that was an interesting conversation. And, you know, the younger would say to the older, Well, yeah, because you started doing this, that's how I got interested in that particular hobby. And then the older said to the younger, Well, yeah, it was because you started doing this particular thing here that that's how I got interested. And so it was just an interesting observation to be able to eavesdrop and listen to the two of them as they exchanged these different uh, experiences with one another. Uh, And I think that what it does is it's just a small window that illustrates the point that I've made earlier throughout this series is that tell me who you spend your time with and I'll tell you who you are. The people that we spend our time with can often have a significant formative effect upon our lives. If we spend time with the wise, then we are going to have their wisdom rub off on us. If we spend time with fools, conversely, we will have their foolishness rub off on us. And so what Solomon does here is he continues to contrast and to set forth the way of the wise against the way of the fool and the various characteristics that mark them. But in this particular instance, what he does is he sets it within the context of the righteous king, the righteous king who winnows out the fools out of his kingdom, the righteous king who brings judgment Against the fool, and conversely, who rewards the righteous. And within the immediate context of Solomon delivering these proverbs, this would, of course, have an important uh, function for his sons. As the king of Israel, he would essentially be telling his sons I, as a king, will winnow the fools out of the kingdom of Israel. And what that's implicitly saying is that you, as potentially one of Israel's future kings, you have to have your mind set on being wise so that you too would winnow out fools from your kingdom. On the other hand... One of the things that we also also have to note is that as the book of Proverbs is set within the canon of scripture, that we know that the book of Proverbs ultimately has a goal and that Solomon in particular is the Old Testament king, in this case, who foreshadows the reign of Jesus Christ and the righteous judgment that he will bring to his kingdom as he reigns in the midst of his enemies and as he winnows out the fools and as he rewards and draws the righteous unto himself. And so if this is the case, if this is ultimately something that is pointing us to the reign and the the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he judges the fool and blesses the wise, then it certainly behooves us as we look at this passage of scripture, to ask ourselves, with whom do we associate ourselves? Will we associate ourselves with the wise? Will we conduct ourselves in a wise manner? Or on the other hand, will we associate ourselves with fools? And will we have their ways rub off on us so much so that whether it's as fatherly discipline Or in a worst case scenario, Christ's judgment against the wicked, will we find ourselves potentially being winnowed out of his kingdom? Well, this is something that calls for wisdom. And to borrow the words of Jesus, he who has ears, let him hear. And so in this particular case, we want to see what Solomon has to say about how the righteous king winnows out the fools. And so first we want to look at the righteous king. Secondly, we want to look at the nature of his winnowing wrath to see who it is specifically that he uh, sifts out of his kingdom. Who is it that he removes from the kingdom? And then finally, and, uh, but certainly not lastly, we want to look at what Solomon has to say about who it is that stands before the king. So what does Solomon say, first of all, about the righteous king? Well, in the previous set of Proverbs, which ends with chapter 20, verse 1, he ends his last set of observations with comments about a drunkard. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so Solomon transitions from the, this, this sinful conduct of the drunkard to the wise king as someone who will judge the fool. Verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Now, again, we need to appreciate what Solomon says here, especially within the context of Israel, because I think there's a little bit more here than first meets the eye. We have to remember that in ancient Israel, the king was one of God's chief representatives In the midst of the people. And in ideal circumstances, the king was supposed to be righteous because he regularly meditated upon the word of God and especially upon his law. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, It talks about the procedures for inaugurating and anointing a king and installing the king. And what the king was supposed to do is that once he was upon his throne, he was supposed to write for himself a copy of God's law. Again, this is a time when books were not in great supply. Uh, And so this means that the king was supposed to write a copy of God's law. And this means it's not just the Ten Commandments, but it would be probably the entire copy of the Pentateuch. He was supposed to write his own copy. This, I think, serves a couple of purposes. You know, one of the things that uh, I am uh, very upset about, to say the least, uh, about uh, education these days is that they have given kids computers. Here, use this computer. Take away all the textbooks, use this computer. And for several years now, I've regularly been telling my kids, set aside the computer, and when you need to learn something, write flashcards. You know, you need to memorize facts, write flashcards. And they say, I don't want to write flashcards, I just want to use the app on the computer where it just quizzes me. And I said, this thing is a distraction machine. All it's going to do is distract you because you've got emails popping up. You've got notifications from your friends. You've got the distraction of the Internet. Whereas if you've got that flashcard, all you're going to do is just have that white flashcard. You're going to write it, and then you're going to write the answer on the back, and then you go through them. I said, but what they've scientifically proven is that when you're writing that flashcard, it's almost akin to practically writing it on the walls of your brain. You know, it's familiarizing yourself with it. I said, when I was in seminary, what I used to do to learn my Hebrew vocabulary or my Greek vocabulary or my English theological vocabulary is I would write the term and then I would write the definition and I would write it 10 times, 10 times. I would write it out by hand, then on to the next term, 10 times until I filled up a whole page, both sides with terms that I had written 10 times because it was the process of writing it upon the walls of my mind. This is the idea that I think that the the Deuteronomy has in view, is that when the king is writing uh, out the copy of the law, it's ultimately being written upon the walls of his mind and upon the walls of his heart, so that he would not only do or know the law of God, but that he would do it, that he would be righteous, That he would not only know God's law, but by studying it and by meditating upon it, writing out a copy of it, writing it upon the walls of his heart, he would also draw near unto God. And by this means God would pour out his wisdom upon him. This, of course, was the ideal situation, which means that the king would be righteous. He would be wise and he would be just. And so when you read there, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He would come to judge the wicked in the kingdom. And this is why Solomon likens the king's wrath unto the roaring of a lion. It's not that the the king would exercise wrath in some sort of animal-like terror, but rather it would be a just wrath. It would be a holy wrath. And in fact, What's interesting here is the way that Solomon describes the wrath of the king is the same way that the prophets describe the wrath of the Lord. Amos 3.5, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? You know, think of it. To to be in the presence of a roaring lion could be a terrifying experience. You know, I was preparing this message. I watched a couple of YouTube videos where it showed the lion's enclosure at a number of different zoos, because I saw a couple of different clips, either one where the lion would just seemingly out of nowhere roar and terrify the people that were there, even though there was a clear divider between them, you know, thick glass wall. In one occasion, it was a child who was standing in front of the glass enclosure and all of a sudden the lion pounced and jumped on the glass. And were it not for the fact that that glass was really thick, I think that child would have been that lion's appetizer. You know, this is the type of fear that the lion instills in us. Well, I think this is the same type of imagery that C.S. Lewis captures in the Chronicles of Narnia in the first installment the magician, or the, uh, the magician's nephew, uh, where uh, these two children, the two chief characters, Diggory and Polly, they first encounter Aslan as Aslan is walking about, and he's singing. and he's singing a beautiful song, and as he sings this song, the creation of Narnia begins to come into existence, and, and animals come up, and all of a sudden, trees sprout out of the earth. But on the other hand, Diggory's Uncle Andrew, when he was there listening to the lion, he did not hear a beautiful song. All he heard, as it was the same noise, but all he heard was the terrifying roaring of a lion, a roar from which he fled in great fear. I think this was Lewis's literary effort to capture the nature of the wrath of God. And then by extension, we see it manifest in the righteous king as he roars like a lion against the wicked fools. You know, to, to borrow a line from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And by the king being The the, the Lord's representative, this is what Solomon is saying. Watch your conduct. Don't act foolishly, because otherwise the roaring lion of the king will come for you. And in fact, this is how... The end of this section concludes in verse eight. Verse two and verse eight essentially are the bookends to this section. Verse two, the terror of the king is like a growling lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Verse eight, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. And so here, these verses begin and end with the judgment of the righteous king. The righteous king is not only just to punish wickedness and evil, but he also sifts it out of his kingdom. He pulls it out, root and branch, to ensure that it does not grow again. And so the question then is naturally poses itself, if the righteous king is going to winnow out evil, if he's going to growl like a terrifying lying lion at foolish conduct and, and against the wicked, what type of sin merits this treatment? What type of sin comes under the judgment of the righteous king? This brings us to our second point, which is the widowing wrath of the king. Now, as we consider the types of sins uh, that the, the king winnows out of his kingdom, we want to remember that this is simply just representative we don't wanna say that this is exhaustive. You know, the, the Solomon is not giving us a complete and total tally of all types of conduct that the king judges, all right? But at the same time, I think as we look at these different types of sin, what it hopefully presents us the opportunity to do is to look into the nooks and crannies of our hearts, to look into the, the, the small corners of our lives to see whether or not we have shown the light of truth, the light of God's law, and the light of God's word upon every corner of our lives. Because I think so often what happens is that our sinful conduct passes by our notice. It passes by our notice because so much of the conduct of the world is in and of itself sinful and foolish, but when we compare ourselves to the sinful conduct of the world, It doesn't look out of place. And it's because we're not comparing ourselves to the standard of God's law, but to the conduct of our neighbor. You know, we say, well, I don't think my conduct is so bad because compared to that guy, I think I'm actually pretty good. Instead of saying, what does the law of God say? What does the word of God say? What does righteousness actually look like if I see it in Christ? And am I living up to that standard? And so I think that Solomon lays out the sinful conduct, which means that he's either implicitly or explicitly instructing us how we should act as wise Christians. So we want to look at a number of these things. And so verse 3 talks first about quarrelers. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And so Solomon labels somebody as being foolish whoever is quarrelsome. There are some people we can say that are literally hell-bent on conflict. They thrive on creating dissension. For example, when Paul lists the works of the flesh, he mentions in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 and following a number of sins that fall under this category. Think of quarreling and what's involved in it. And then think about what Paul says there when he he condemns strife, enmity, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Quarrelsomeness is the mark of the fool. It's the mark of someone that the righteous king winnows out of his kingdom. Think, for example, as how divided and contentious our culture is at this particular moment, at least in our nation. You know, you see it virtually everywhere we turn. Now, this is not to say that we're not entitled to have opinions. I think we can have those opinions. And this is not to say that we can't even perhaps at times and in a godly way pursue our opinions whether it's in conversation, whether it's in policy, uh, whether it's in the way that we spend our money. But what Solomon does say here is that we're not supposed to do so in a quarrelsome manner. We're not supposed to do so in a quarrelsome manner. And this is why Paul's words, especially as he addresses all of those works of the flesh, strife, enmity, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, he says in Galatians 5.21, I warn you, As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here, Paul is echoing the same truth that Solomon teaches, which is the righteous king will widow out quarrelsome people out of his kingdom. Are we swept up, therefore, in the quarreling of our day? You know, so often it's the case that I think we just need to maybe turn off the news, not watch it. This is not to say that we're indifferent to the things that go uh, go on around us. But if it's stoking our anger, stoking our quarrelsome nature, so that we're just looking for any opportunity that we can to engage in an argument. If I can just find somebody that holds the opposite opinion, then I can let them have it. And we might think it's okay for us to do this. Why? We take a look at our truculent culture. We say, well, look at everybody. Everybody. News media, journalists, politicians, uh, elected officials, they're all doing it. So sure, why not? Why don't we just join in on the fun? And yet, what does Solomon say by contrast? He says again there at the beginning of verse 3, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. It's an honorable thing for us. To not step into the midst of a quarrel. So often it's the case that my wife will hear somebody say something in my presence. Whether it's because we're visiting a church and maybe they're trying to sniff me out as to where I am on a theological position. And I won't say anything. And then afterwards, she'll ask me in the car, why didn't you say something to that person? I could tell they were asking you about your position, this or that. And I said, because I could tell, I think that they were just trying to provoke me. They weren't interested in a genuine question, but rather they were only interested in seeing if I might mix it up. And I'm not interested in mixing it up. I didn't detect that they had an open ear. I just detected that they had an open mouth. And the two are not the same. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfect. No way. Sometimes I get sucked in. (laughs) And we we have to avoid that. The godly person steers clear of strife and quarreling. And in fact, notice the irony here. And that someone might say, but I have to fight to defend my honor. This quarrelsome person has attacked me, and so I have to say something back. But the one who avoids quarreling doesn't defend his honor, but rather he actually preserves it. Somebody may insult you, and the way to preserve your honor is to walk away, not to say anything in return, and to engage in a quarrel. That may be a tough one. But that's ultimately what we see in Christ, who like a lamb before the shearers was silent, he did not defend himself. And we might say, but that means that we're supposed to have insult heaped upon us? Maybe so. That's what I would say. It's the way of the cross. It's taking up our cross and following Christ. It's being conformed to his image as they insulted the head. So, People, will unfortunately, but to God's glory and to our sanctification, insult the body. And in fact, this is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 put on then, uh, sorry, Colossians 3, verses 12 and following put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We're not supposed to put on a quarrelsome garment. We're supposed to put on the garments of peace and love and patience. So quarrelsomeness is incompatible with the kingdom of God. Secondly, we can say sluggards. Verse four, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Now, as I've said in previous sermons, sluggards are those who are lazy towards the things of God and their indolence, their sloth towards Christian duty produces a physical slothfulness in life. And so here Solomon paints a vivid picture that requires a little bit of farming knowledge from ancient Israel. I'm no farmer, I just read books. And so this is what I found out, right? And that the sluggard won't plow in the autumn. And conversely, when it's time to harvest, he's got nothing to eat. And so this is a period from mid-October through April The fall rains would soften the earth and allow farmers to plow and plant cereal or grains. And so then they would uh, harvest the grain in April and plant vegetables for a second crop of food in the spring. But the sluggard stands by and watches the diligent work. He doesn't plow. Of course, this is very challenging work. It's not nowadays where you have big machines that do all your plowing. You would have to put the yoke on the oxen and you would just have to work this thing through the ground to break up the fallow ground. So it was hard work. But because the sluggard wouldn't plow, he has nothing to plant. And then, of course, again, he has nothing to harvest. Come harvest time, he has nothing to eat. And so he has to beg for food. And he can't also plant the second crop to harvest in the fall. So if he survives without food to harvest, the pressing question is is whether he would survive the next year because he had no food for the fall. Well, the righteous king, according to Solomon, is going to winnow out the sluggards out of his kingdom. You know, nowadays, we can see this in our own culture. We have a time where many businesses, maybe you've seen it, there are tons of signs out there in the marketplace, need job, need job, need job. It's like I walked into a drugstore the other day to pick up a prescription. I think I was the only person in the (laughs) drugstore. I didn't see an employee, nobody in the pharmacy. It was just me. I felt like if I wanted to, I could have grabbed whatever I wanted and walked out. It was just empty. And finally, after about 10 minutes, somebody finally came in and uh, they said, oh, I'm so sorry you had to wait. We're just in desperate need of help. I'm having to do the work of two people. There are just not enough employees. And of course, we know this because there are a lot of unemployment benefits. And some people have said, hey, it's easier for me to be unemployed and to collect money from the government than it is for me to work. Now, I'm not saying that if you collect unemployment, you're a sluggard. But on the other hand, we live in the midst of a culture where there are people who are willing to lay at home and collect unemployment rather than work. They're sluggards. Now, are we using benefits for a time, benefits that we've accrued by paying taxes uh, so that we can uh, get from transition from one job to another? Fine. No problem. No complaints. On the other hand, do we maybe slip into being sluggards? But again, there's more here than meets the eye. This is not just about planting. This is not just about providing finances for yourself. It's not just about eating. Rather, James says in chapter 3, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, the Bible characterizes life as one of sowing wisdom and reaping a harvest of wise fruit later in life. So are we sowing wisdom in our lives so that we reap a bountiful harvest later? Or within the thought world of Solomon's proverb, are we standing idly by, not sowing anything, not sowing anything of godliness so that later on in life, when we're going to need to have godly habits and a godly disposition, we're not going to have anything to harvest because we have no holiness to draw upon because we have sown no holiness. We have not drawn nigh unto Christ through the means of grace. And therefore, when we need righteousness, when we need patience, when we need love, we will have none. So we should not be sluggards. as the king will Winnow out the sluggards from his kingdom, whether it's sluggards that are unwilling to work or sluggards who do not pursue the things of God. Connivers, verse 5, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You see, connivers are those who deceptively hide their true intentions. They think they can hide their wicked plans from their peers. This is why Solomon says the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. In other words, he buries his intentions deep beneath the surface. And so this is why he says here, Solomon says here, that a man's intentions are like deep water. The deeper you go in the ocean, the darker it gets and the more difficult it is to see. And so we might ask, might the righteous king be able to observe the unobservable? Well, again, verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. You see, the conniver thinks he can hide his intentions by burying them deep within, seemingly out of the purview of the righteous king. But what Solomon here is saying is he says, no, no. You, O foolish man, may think you're hiding your deceptive uh, and true intentions deep within your heart. You say one thing, but you're thinking another. But the righteous king can spy it out. The righteous king can see through your deceptive ways. Think, for example, of Christ as he dealt with the Pharisees, as he dealt with the religious leaders, They repeatedly would say one thing and hide their true intentions. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. And yet the Gospels regularly say, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. You see, the the wise king can see through the charade. But how much more can Jesus see through the charade of the deception of the fool? The fool who thinks he's hiding his true intentions but within when in reality he's not what does hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 say and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account the righteous king jesus knows all of the intentions of our hearts And so this means that connivers, those who seek to try to bury their wickedness beneath a false, you know, but behind a facade of pretended righteousness will not be able to stand before the throne of the righteous king. Verse six, hypocrites. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. We can say that hypocrites are another class of deceiver that will fall under the winnowing eye of the king. Hypocrites, like connivers, think that they can hide the truth with a thin layer of words. Jesus was one who had harsh words of rebuke and condemnation against the hypocrites. We cannot merely say that we love God but we must also do what we say. James two fourteen. what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You can't merely say that you believe in Jesus and then thinking that those words will cover your wickedness. On the contrary, Solomon here is looking for consistency. The, the righteous king looks for consistency. A walk that matches the talk a talk that matches the walk. And so this is why Paul, for example, in Galatians 5, 6, says faith works through love. A few verbal fig leaves will not protect us from the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of judgment, the judgment of God on the last day. And so this is, in one sense, this can be a little bit frightening this can be a little bit frightening because if you think about it, you know, the, the righteous king is going to winnow out sluggers. He's going to winnow out connivers. He's going to winnow out hypocrites, which leads us to our last and brief third point, which is who is it that can stand before the king if he's going to winnow out all of these fools? Well, Solomon warns about the winnowing eyes of the king which I think ultimately point to the judgment of the Messiah, the judgment that is coming from Jesus. You know, what is it that Solomon's father David taught him in in Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. As Solomon has alluded throughout this passage, you know, these are words I think that that perhaps were informed by Psalm 1-5, another Psalm of David. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, neither quarrellers, nor sluggards nor connivers nor hypocrites. Who then? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity... Blessed are his children after him. The righteous, as we know, from the collective witness of Scripture are only those who seek shelter beneath the wings of Christ. Only those whom God gives the gift and eyes of faith can trust in Christ and thus receive all of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and we can say, and righteousness through him. Only through Christ And the convicting power of the Spirit can we see our quarrelsome hearts and repent and seek shelter in Christ. Only by Christ can we see our sluggish inclinations and repent and seek shelter in Christ. Only through Christ can we see the conniving ways of our minds and repent and seek shelter in Christ. Only through Christ and the convicting power of the Spirit can we see our hypocrisy and repent and seek shelter in Christ. But what is such a blessing here, and I think that this is ultimately what Solomon is doing, because remember, Solomon is is sitting here in the context of passing on wisdom to his sons, wisdom to his sons, And the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Do you remember what the law says about those who do not uh, love the Lord, that he will punish those who do not love him to the third and fourth generations? But what does he say to those who love them? That he will bless them and their children after them to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. What did Peter say at Pentecost when the people said and cried out, What must we do to be saved? When they recognized that they were guilty for crucifying Christ. And he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So beloved, the message here is simple. Recognize that King Jesus is righteous and he will winnow out quarrelers. He will winnow out sluggards. He will winnow out connivers and hypocrites. And only the righteous will stand in his presence. Only those who are wise. And it's a righteousness and wisdom that only comes by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Which means when we're asking ourselves, who is it that is influencing us? Who is it that is forming our character? We should chiefly say it is Christ and those godly saints who make us want to be better Christians, who point us to Christ and that it would not be fools who lead us away from Christ and potentially into the the hands of Jesus who winnows out the wicked let us therefore seek Christ in His righteousness, to seek shelter in Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you are merciful to us beyond what we could ever ask, imagine, or think. And we pray, O Lord, that as we have heard the warnings against uh, of the judgment that fall upon the wicked, that you would teach us, O Lord. In our heart of hearts, that we so desperately need Christ, so that He would make us truthful, that we would not try to hide our true intentions, that He would He would purge us of our hypocrisy, that He would make us diligent to serve His kingdom, that we would not be sluggards, oh Lord, that uh, we would not be foolish uh, with our uh, our ways and that we would quarrel with others, that he would give unto us the peace that surpasses all understanding, even if people seek to, uh, to defame our honor. We pray, O Lord, that in this way, that you would make us more like Christ by your grace, that you would give us his wisdom, that we would be able to see our sinfulness and repent of it. And by your grace, O Lord, that you would bring glory to your name, through our words, thoughts, and deeds, through everything that we say, think, and do. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.